1954, the Supreme Court handed down its famous decision in Brown versus the Board of Education. Racial segregation in public schools, the court said, deprived children of their right to equal protection under the 14th Amendment. Oliver W. Hill was a lawyer for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund in Richmond, Virginia at the time. He and his colleagues had filed case after case against segregation, including one initiated by a student protest in Prince Edward County, Virginia. That was one of the five cases folded into Brown. And when the Brown ruling came down... It was the happiest I'd ever seen him. (laughs) This is Oliver Hill Jr. He remembers his father's reaction to Brown because it was so out of character. I mean, he was always pretty, you know, low-key. He didn't really, you know, emote uh, that much around the, the household anyway. And... That particular day, I just remember uh, him just beaming. (laughs) But the joy didn't last. The very next year, the Supreme Court mandated a timetable for desegregation. In a case known as Brown v. Board 2, Chief Justice Earl Warren ordered segregated school districts to comply with the first Brown decision with all deliberate speed. It was a phrase with built-in ambiguity. And across the South, Many school districts took advantage of the ambiguity to take their own sweet time with the order. Some districts in Virginia chose to close their public schools down entirely while funding so-called private academies for white children. In 2015, our co-host Brian Ballow sat down with Oliver Hill Jr. to talk about his memories of this fraught chapter in American history. Hill said his father was part of the legal team that was asked to help the court come up with a timetable for Brown II. And in fact, after they had made a few proposals to the opposing counsel and all of them were rejected, uh, my father said they finally just in an exasperated way uh, asked, well, what do you think would be a reasonable time frame? And the other lawyers came back with 2020. (laughs) So 2020. 2020 uh, was what they thought would be a reasonable length. So we're not there 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 yet. yet. And I think deliberate speed was the most benign translation of 2020. (laughs) Do you think that deliberate undercut speed, or do you think that it was intended to kind of reinforce a steady, I have always interpreted it as a a kind of steady speed. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a reasonable uh, interpretation. Uh, But again, I think from the standpoint of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund lawyers, why was there a need for any kind of uh, equivocation? I mean, th- this is now the law of the land. Let's institute it. Right. Um, the white perception was, particularly in the South, that there would be this bloodbath if it took place too fast. And so uh, I think it was to placate the more Southern-leaning um, members of the court that Earl Warren kind of agreed to that phrasing. And I think at, within a year or two, Deliberate speed meant never. (laughs) I mean, I was one of the first in one of the first groups to desegregate schools in Richmond, Virginia, and that was in 1961. So that was already seven years after the original decision. And even at that time, it was really just token integration. It was just, you know, a few black students in a few white schools. Tell me about your experience uh, being one of the first African-Americans to desegregate a school? It was uh, like entering another world. I mean, in the days of segregation in the South, uh, you know, even growing up in a middle-class household, my world was circumscribed by the black community. You know, it was very self-sufficient. 
So I really didn't have a lot of experience interacting with white people. Mm-hmm. And so this first day, it was at Chandler Junior High School in Richmond. I must have been 12. And I was walking up the steps. It was a very imposing building. They must have had us come late because there wasn't the usual hustle and bustle of kids going in and out of the school. There was absolutely nobody out in front of the school as I was walking up the steps. You know, I really didn't know what to expect. And it was interesting. I mean, there, for the most part, most of the kids and most of the teachers were friendly. Um, there were a few, both teachers and students, who you could tell did not want us there. Mm-hmm. How could you uh, tell that? Well, they would call you names or things like Not the teachers, but the students. Uh-huh. <laughs> or they would call you the N-word or, uh-huh. uh, you know, any creative thing. One time somebody called me a burnt biscuit. <laughs> wow. Oliver, were there moments on that first day or the first week or maybe over the course of your public school education where you kind of wondered whether this was too speedy? I mean, you personally— well, I personally didn't want to be there. I wanted to be with my friends in the black school. Uh-huh. Uh, but I'd kind of been geared toward this, and so I understood the larger issues. Uh, uh-huh. My father would always talk to me about integration of the schools as the process by which people would learn how to live together. And in fact, that experiment was working pretty well uh, when I first started integrating the schools. I mean, gradually we had more and more black kids coming mm-hmm. in there was actually meaningful integration for a couple of years. You know, there was kind of a gradual, grudging recognition of each other's humanity. So the experiment was working. Um, You know, unfortunately, just as we were starting to have some breakthroughs, you know, in in terms of the social experiment, uh, there was that immediate resegregation of schools with white flight toward the end of the 60s. When I think at, at the point where it was recognized that this wasn't going to be reversed and this wasn't going to change, uh, then you know new strategies were put in place. Well, some of that white flight, and I'm in no way um, condoning it, but some of it was in reaction to the court finally getting serious about implementing uh, its decision in 1954 and 1955. Uh, In 1964, for instance, the Supreme Court said there's been entirely too much deliberation and not enough speed. What if the Supreme Court, rather than using that phrase, all deliberate speed, had said immediately and without delay, or even something, you know, simple, like within three months back in 1955? What if? First of all, I don't think there would have been a bloodbath. I think uh, children are very resilient. A lot of the black and white children in the South were playing together anyway. And I think the same social experiment that I was going through in the early 60s would have happened earlier and in a more uh, comprehensive way. And I think because of the delay, a lot of other factors started to to come into play. Because in the 60s, once you had the, the passage of civil rights laws and the society was generally more open for black people, not only did you have white flight to the suburbs, but black middle-class flight to the suburbs. And so inner cities started to be starved of their tax base. Uh, You know, you had this concentration of poverty. And so what started out as a a race issue started to get conflated with class, and, and it made the problems of inner city schools in 
city life in general, you know, much more problematic than they would have been uh, without those complications. Oliver Hill Jr. is a psychology professor at Virginia State University. He also served on the board at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, where Backstory is produced. You know, one of the things that really struck me about this story is the deliberate ambiguity of of that so ruling. To speak. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, <laughs> very deliberate and yet not deliberate. Just the ways in which that was explicitly not specific, and that that was, in a sense, the purpose of it was to not be specific. And it really does show what can happen when the court decides to build in these gray spaces, right? It gives people all kinds of space to operate. I mean, the story that we, you know, tell about the Brown decision really is kind of schizophrenic, right? I mean, we talk about it as being this landmark, you know, decision. Right. But then when you look at its impact, you always wonder what exactly did it accomplish? Mm. And I think something from the Hill interview that really does hammer this home is, as he says, so much happens after the Brown decision comes down that allows there to be a kind of muddying of the waters about desegregation, right? You have schools that are blocking the effort to basically desegregate. You have the privatization of certain schools, and everyone's finding a different way to deal with this. And if you look at the the litigation around school desegregation itself, you have cases in, you know, Charlotte where they're defending busing successfully through a court order. You have cases in southeast Michigan where they decide that they're not going to basically defend busing because you can't prove that you have intentional discrimination. And through the 70s and 80s, every little corner of the country is coming up with its own kind of on-the-fly response for either executing or not the mandate in Brown. And so, you know, it's in a lot of ways the kind of landmark decision that never was. Um, Just as a Mm -hmm. a quick counterpoint, there's a case that most people have no knowledge of at all, which is Jones versus Mayer, which is a 1968 decision. And there, there's no ambiguity at all. Mm -hmm. All they basically say is that Congress has the right to regulate the sale of private property. And that is what allows the Fair Housing Act in that year, 1968, to basically have teeth. And and you'll love this different kind of language from as opposed to all deliberate speed, which is simply drawing from the good old 19th century U.S. Code from 1866. All citizens of the United States will have the same right in every state and territory as is enjoyed by white citizens thereof to inherit, purchase, lease, sell, hold, and convey per- real and personal property, unquote, right? So basically you're saying, look, what we're going to say now around housing is everybody has the same rights as white people, full stop. That's what the court wow. is going to decide. <laughs> no, no, no implementation, vagueness, nothing like that. It's like, just give everybody white rights as it concerns housing, and now we're going to move on. Wow. And that's an interesting contrast, I think, to what happens in 1954, 55. 
So does that mean, Nathan, that we can't really tell when a Supreme Court decision is actually a blockbuster decision? Sometimes that there's a, a delayed fuse? I think that's right. I mean, the language as we saw in the earlier cases from, you know, 1917 and 18 around clear and present danger, that phrase, I'm sure when it was initially conceptualized, maybe wasn't meant to be the kind of measure that it ends up being for future free speech cases. And I wonder to what extent, I mean, obviously, justices are very careful with their clerks about the language they use, but you never really know what phrase is going to be the one that kind of gives the next generation of litigants and cases their life, you know? 